Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today we'll be picking up with the fallout from the Israelites constructing and worshiping a golden calf while Moses was meeting with God and receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Here's Exodus chapter 32, starting at verse 30, and we're going to be reading into the first six verses of chapter 33. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. But the Lord replied to Moses, No, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. Look, my angel will lead the way before you, and when I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. Then the Lord sent a great plague upon the people, because they had worshipped the calf Aaron had made. The Lord said to Moses, Get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them I will give this land to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you. For you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. When the people heard these stern words, they went into mourning and stopped wearing their jewelry and fine clothes. For the Lord had told Moses to tell them, You are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I were to travel with you for even a moment, I would destroy you. Remove your jewelry and fine clothes while I decide what to do with you. So from the time they left Mount Sinai, the Israelites wore no more jewelry or fine clothes. I find it interesting, actually, that the Israelites were wearing their fine jewelry and clothing out and about in the Sinai wilderness. It seems like they might have been overdressed for this occasion. Like, was this just the overreaction, overreaction of a people who had been in slavery for 400 years, brutally oppressed and mistreated in recent years, and then upon receiving their freedom, also plundered the most powerful and wealthy nation in the known world? So they went from homeless street person to homeless street person with a ton of cash, livestock, and fancy stuff. I'm sure I've got that all wrong. It's just the picture that comes to my mind. Either way, this was the last day they would wear anything fancy in the wilderness. They had broken God's heart, and they couldn't bring themselves to go on with life the way they had been. Food lost its flavor. Wealth lost its fun. Life was very precious and serious and fragile in this time.
I'm going to come back to that setting, that feeling in a minute, but I want to stop and recognize that this is a really unique passage in Scripture. I think we've all run into the caricature of God as an angry, spiteful, vindictive, capricious, moody, fickle God in the Old Testament, unlike the God we find in the New. And shoot, we've probably even been thinking those things. But this passage seems to reinforce that stereotype. It's as if God is more human than God. I mean, take a look. He's extremely ticked. Already, Moses had to intercede for the people and convince God to change his mind, which he does. And then Moses completely loses his cool. But Moses then tries to appease God and his anger and obtain forgiveness by offering his own life as a substitute. God then angrily brushes off Moses' suggestion and is intent on punishing the people, holding them responsible for their own sin, which he does through a plague. In addition to what we read about yesterday, where 3,000 had to be killed. Then God doesn't even seem to trust himself to travel with the Israelites to the promised land. And maybe that's a wrong turn of phrase, trust himself. But he knows he's going to fulfill his promise to give them the land, but he's not going to go with them because he knows that they'll mess up again and he'll just end up killing them all. I mean, doesn't that seem incredibly human? Those emotions, those feelings, that passion, that reaction... Now, maybe for you, none of this poses a problem. In most moments, I'm pretty good with this revelation of God. But I think for some of us who like our understanding of God to be clean and tidy, these kind of depictions throw a huge wrench into our definitions of God as omnipotent, which means all-powerful, or omniscient, which means all-knowing and even foreknowing, or omnibenevolent, which means perfectly good. But as it's been said before in these devotionals, and I'll say it again, we must always be careful reading back onto these ancient histories our own values and understandings that would probably not in any way be possible even without this long sweep of history through which God has gradually revealed himself. We're at a completely different understanding of who God is, how he operates, what he cares about. Now we've got so much more information. And back then, people were just getting to know him. So they were getting to know how God feels about our attempts to control him or interact with him on our own terms and disregard his terms. Just our never-ending capacity to be our own gods is an infuriating problem. And he's simultaneously laying the necessary foundation and framework for him to rescue us from ourselves and all of this junk in himself. You take it all on himself in Jesus. 
while at the very same time, he's wanting to enter into and initiate a relationship with these people, these very real people whom he cares about and loves, but who are squirrely and uncooperative the entire time. The term hurting cats even comes to mind, but astonishingly, people are the same. We're no different. We just happen to be living in a time period where God has finished the work of rescuing us so we th see things differently. All that brings me back to my initial, initial observation. The feeling of this passage, the mood that I'm picking up, feels very similar to the devastating period of time when one spouse has cheated on another and it just got discovered. Now, the cheating spouse didn't come clean. They were caught in the act. And now the relationship has just been completely blown up. Reality has been shattered. What one spouse thought was the nature of their relationship, committed, loving, everything was great. They have now discovered it was a complete lie. And they're hurt, they're angry, they're disappointed, they're sick to their stomach, and there's no end in sight for any of those feelings. This will permanently change how they relate to each other. Most couples don't survive infidelity in an affair. The wound is too deep. The problems revealed by that action, those problems that led up to it, they just seem like a mountain too great to scale. And the cost, well, it's probably just better to cut the cost, take the loss, and run. But some do make it. There are some relationships that miraculously struggle and claw and fight to restore that marriage. And with a lot of blood, sweat, tears, grace, and forgiveness, those relationship, relationships can gradually be knit back together and become even stronger than ever. My wife Jessica and I, we've been there before. I've hurt my wife so deeply, not physically, but I've broken her heart, I've broken her trust, and I've deeply wounded her. And that sucked for both of us. I never intended to, but there we were. And I didn't feel like I could do a thing to stop the tears from falling. And while you're probably wondering how I ventured off into this particular metaphor, here's where I find the application for me. I feel like I know what the Israelites were feeling in that moment. They're feeling like, man, I have seriously messed up. What have I done? I may have just trashed the most important thing, the best thing going in my life. And it's in that moment that what they do next is crucial. Because while forgiveness can eventually come in a human relationship, and even from God, trust is a whole different matter. 
there will definitely be consequences for this unfaithfulness, this lie, this power play. And consequences will be bad enough. But the real work, the real determining factor for if this will work out is what comes next. Will the person in the wrong have the character and determination to own up, to take responsibility for messing up, to get humble and earn trust back? Earning trust, unlike forgiveness, is a long, hard road of repeatedly, intentionally, reliably doing the right thing over and over and over again in every situation. It's putting away the fancy party clothes, getting serious, getting humble, and committing to the long haul of being faithful and trustworthy from that point on. Don't get me wrong. There's no condemnation anymore. There is complete forgiveness. We've been taken off the hook. But part of repentance is surrendering our lives to obedience and faithfulness to Him. That's what we're turning to. And that calling, that lifestyle, that long obedience in the same direction, man, that's bigger than the Mount, Mount Everest. It's deeper than the Mariana Trench. But that challenge is the one most worth undertaking in this life. So, are you ready with me to maybe take off the party clothes, the jewelry, all the fancy stuff, and get humble before God and just walk humbly before Him? following him. Lord, I, I'm not wanting this to be a guilt-inducing time for us, but just a realization that there are those times when in order to take off the stuff in our life that is displeasing to you, that is drawing up a wall between you and us that is just clearly sin. It's not. We're missing the mark. We're missing your ideal for life. Then, Father, I pray that you would call us on it and that we'd have the guts to own up, take responsibility, and to get humble before you. Father, I'm addicted to myself. I I love doing things that that please me and pursuing things that bring me pleasure. And while a lot of those things are perfectly good gifts from you, a lot of it is just it's not good, it's not beneficial, and it's not taking me where you're leading me and wanting to take me. So Father, would you strip those things away from us? so that we take off the party clothes and the jewelry and all the fanciness and we just get real before you and walk humbly before you. May that be our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.